What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. As shared in part one of Vanessa V's story, we first heard from her on season two of the podcast Unraveled the Stalker's Web and via Discovery's documentary of the same title in 2021. However, her journey as a stalking victim started nearly two decades before her media-based advocacy journey began. Over those two decades, Vanessa experienced escalating, cyclical cyber-stalking that affected all facets of her life. Still, Vanessa's tenacity and strength shines through as she continues to reinvent herself amidst all that comes next in her battle to be recognized and to receive justice. We don't hear a whole lot from the FBI for a long time. I get another shitty email from Jason, forward it to the Texas FBI agent, and he goes, hey, actually, I'm not on the case anymore. He's not in my jurisdiction. I need you to email this FBI agent in the New York City area. The New York FBI agent actually confirmed that he was living on Staten Island, which was kind of a relief because that's then very far from Texas and makes his death threats a little less plausible. I think at that point they had realized my case was not going to be the one that was prosecutable, or at least it was going to be very hard to prove. I didn't know it at the time, but I was not who they were going to go for. But I was identified as a victim, and in 2017, find out from a victim's notification service that Jason was arrested. Apparently where he slipped up is he wasn't paying for his own internet. He was hijacking the neighbor's internet, which obviously was not secure. This is the neighbor next door on Staten Island. And the FBI was able to trace back to that house. They put that house under surveillance, realized these people are not who's doing this. Somehow they figured it out. He did have a protective order against him for cyber stalking from a university in Seattle. So that probably helped. If you're in this circumstance, if you can get that protective order, make that chain of paperwork, document everything. So he's arrested. We're put on the FBI victim notification system. There's victim advocates that were assigned to us. We don't know what he's arrested for. We don't know what he's getting charged with. For all we know, all of our cases are getting charged. I know the lady with the FBI told me they don't move unless they have a rock-solid case. So after he's arrested, I get several emails from a very funny-looking email server that's like, F you, you ruined my life. 
I forward those to the FBI. They're not interested. They're like, he can't use the internet. If he uses the internet, we're going to arrest him. This is where it starts to get hazy. We're not getting threats. We are all sitting in our social media group. We're very anxious about what's going on. I think we assumed that as soon as he was arrested, the internet would magically get cut. Aside from the F you, you've ruined my life. It's radio silence. And that's also very weird because I was used to radio silence. But when is this going to pop up again? I know enough about the criminal justice system at this point to know that first-time offenders usually plea out. He is likely going to take a plea. And as this starts to stretch out, after it starts to get to be like a year, it's like, well, he might just get time served. The longer this goes on, the longer he's just under house arrest, we do get that confirmed. And he's allowed to only use the internet for work. From what I understand, he's a fairly competent database programmer, and he also sells books online. He is still allowed to technically use the internet so he can do his job. Eventually, he goes to court to make his guilty plea. When he pled guilty, they asked for victim advocacy statements. My husband gave one, and it was partly on my behalf, because at that point, I was still dealing with the death of my dad. I just didn't have the bandwidth. That's when we find out what the charges are and that no one I know had charges filed against Jason. I have been told at this point that they either could not prove my harassment or what they could prove was so old it was grandfathered out. There are two cases, two people that are presented. One is an unknown woman who received this disturbing thing that we call the owl poem. It's not really a poem, it's more prose. It's very disturbing and it's about how you can disfigure a human being to torture them and turn them into a human owl and keep them alive in agony and pain for the rest of their lives. I don't know where this came from. I do know at least five other people that received the owl poem, including Rachel I never received it, or if I did, I didn't catch it because sometimes his shit would go to spam. The other person who has a case against Jason is his childhood pen pal. They began exchanging letters in the third grade since at least the 1970s. His letters start to become more and more disturbed and upsetting. Eventually, she's like, I don't want to talk to you and quits communicating, but he never let it go. He harassed her either through the mail or online. And at one point, apparently, she moved overseas, and he started harassing her by sending death threats. I don't even think that the people in the documentary were able to uncover it. They did not want to be publicly known. I respect that. I would love to meet them and ask a million questions, but that's probably exactly why they don't want to talk to somebody like me. I hope that this has been healing for them. I hope that they feel safer. I can't imagine like 35, 40 years of this. Suddenly, all of the documents we're getting from victim services instead of having the name Jason Christopher Hughes has the name Raymond Johnson on it. I asked the victim statement person, I'm like, who is Raymond Johnson? Because I've gotten emails from this name and they're like, that's actually his legal name and it has been for some number of years. I responded, why am I just now finding this out? They said, I don't know. I'm like, okay, there are emails after 2014 harassing me and threatening me from Raymond Johnson 
if that is his legal name, why am I not one of the people who has charges up? And they said, we're not pursuing this any further. We're awaiting sentencing every three to six months. It gets pushed back another three to six months. And this is why I was very prepared for time served. We had always made a joke that as soon as the news gets ill hold of this story, they're going to fucking love it because this is so crazy. For years, we had been trying to get someone in the media to pay attention to us. And nobody would. I respect journalistic integrity. I would rather they not do something than do something and someone that's actually innocent. But at this point, your reporter in New York, she looks through the court docket for the day and she reads the owl poem and she's just like, oh, wow, the gentleman and the woman who lived in L.A. both had pages at that point. The woman who lived in L.A. actually has news stories. So she was able to get a hold of them regarding Jason. The woman that lived in L.A. then contacts me and is like, they want quotes for a news story. I didn't know to expect this at all. I actually called New York FBI agent and I'm like, hey, we're getting contacted by reporters. I'm like, what do I do? And he's like, do you want to mess up the case potentially? And I'm just like, will it mess up the case? He's like, I don't know. Do you think it will? And then a ton of reporters start running the story. I also don't know, is that going to make him mad? And is this going to blow back on me? We're used to that happening. So I was anonymous in all of those articles, just because at that point, I was not comfortable with it. It was so just out of left field. After these news stories, there's nothing. We're all waiting around. I actually moved out of Dallas in 2017 because my dad had died. I've had a lot more therapy and I've dealt with a lot of the grief and I'm able to just focus on my own life. There's a lot more healing that's gone on. I opened an oddity store. I actually had an art history podcast for a couple of years. I had a little more confident to do this stuff because I knew he wasn't going to be out there. At one point, I started a fun little podcast that was about the oddity store and I would talk to my employees and talk about the weird shit that happened. I had one episode where another employee and I talked about our experiences being stalked. For the first time in my life, I could actually talk about what happened with Jason because he'd had a federal conviction, whereas talking about it publicly any other time left me open to potential suits and law enforcement might not take me as seriously. They made it very clear. I just need to not talk about it or do anything that might rile him up because it could be seen as me antagonizing him and not count as harassment. It was fun for me because I finally feel like I've had enough space and he's on house arrest. I make this podcast and I think Rachel is the only person that listens to it. And she's like, you know what? This is actually a really good idea. There is a true crime podcast I listen to that sometimes takes listener submissions. I am going to reach out to them and see if they'll cover it. The podcast is the one that Alexis Linkletter has with two other nice ladies. We had the benefit at this point that there was also the write-ups on him. So they chose to run Rachel's story. We were all like, high fives, take that, Jason. We didn't think anything else was going to happen. After she does that podcast, he walked back his guilty plea. One of the sentencing appearance things, his lawyer showed up to court. We had no idea this could happen. 
they don't call us to tell us this happens. It just pops up in the victim advocacy email and we're like, is he still under house arrest? And what does this mean? Is there going to be a trial? We all threw a fit when he walked back the guilty plea because we did not know what was going to go on. Eventually, he then declares himself guilty again. He goes up to get sentenced. They push it back. He goes up to get sentenced. They pushed it back. We are occasionally like, when is this going to happen? I had moved my business. I had taken on significant business debt because it's very expensive to move a business. I fully reopened February 2020 and COVID hits. I also find out at that point, I'm going to have to have my thyroid out. This is major surgery. They actually did have significant complications from it. My thyroid was about to collapse my trachea, which is why in the documentary, I occasionally kind of sound like I'm choking. But it points out when people do these documentaries, you never know what they're going through. So I am faced with, I don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic. I'm going to have to have surgery. I'm going to be out for an unknown period of time. So I actually just declared bankruptcy. Late 2020, Rachel texts me and she's like, hey, do you remember that podcast I did? And they have a TV show now and they want to do a documentary about Jason. I had to sit there for a second and I'm like, oh, holy shit. I watch a lot of documentaries, so I'm running through my head because there's somewhere they make the victims look bad like they deserved it. I automatically had a bunch of questions. I've gone through enough. I've already been shamed by enough police officers. Alexis told me what they were looking into, what they were going to do, how they were going to handle it. In January of 2021, one month before I had surgery, she flew me out to Austin and I got to meet Rachel in person for the first time, which was wonderful. I got to meet Spencer Chow, which was wonderful. That was one of the one thing I asked if I was going to go out to Austin is, I want to meet him. If you were going to interview him, I don't care if it's for five seconds, I need to thank this man. Getting to meet him through this documentary, getting to hug him and actually say thank you, it kind of made rehashing all of this worth it because he had no idea what a difference he made for all of us. Being able to thank him for being the first police officer that took me seriously. That was so beautiful. It was kind of weird when Billy showed up because I had had no communication with that guy before any of this. He showed up the day of recording. I had very little experience with Billy. He's a very imposing man. He's tall. He's very brooding. And he's not on the podcast anymore. A lot of that interview, I'm just disassociated. That's somehow I survived living with my mother. I called it being a bubble and I would just go be a bubble. One of the hard things about the documentary was like, don't be too funny. They'll think you're not serious. And I get it. It's about what happened. It's not about me. I will say one of the hardest parts about doing the documentary, never made it into the documentary. They filmed all this in some Airbnbs because I think they wanted to keep where we actually lived anonymous. Alexis and Billy, they had talked to Jason's mom. We're in the back of this Airbnb. and They filmed us watching the conversation with Jason's mom. We did consent to seeing it. We're sitting in front of this little fire watching this screen, and the whole time we're watching it, I had done those dip nails. I just picked them off, and I don't know if you know how hard it is to pick those dip nails off. I just wasn't prepared. His mother tries to explain it away. 
we were all curious about where he came from. I knew this guy came from some kind of fucked up childhood, but we had just enough things in common that really bothered me, especially the step-parent adoption. I actually had to get up and walk away at one point. When they did the documentary, of course, they tried to confront Jason. They also had to email him and give him an opportunity to talk. Somehow, Jason becomes aware that I have surrendered all of the pornographic photos to Discovery that he had sent me over the years. This is part of fair use because he has sent them to me. I feel like Unraveled almost downplayed how many people have been affected by this guy. A lot of them just didn't want to talk because they were afraid of the ramifications, even though at that point he had been arrested. I will say, The producer who was in charge of it was very forward with how it was going to release. He screened it and listened to the podcast all together, me, Rachel, and Travis. He was Jason's friend. The documentary comes out. We're in a New York Post article that Discovery set up. Discovery told us, if anyone wants to talk to us, they'll forward it. Because I really would love to become involved in one of these organizations that advocates for legal changes. In every city, there needs to be cyber-stalking departments. It would be nice to hear the police take this seriously. They'll investigate a murder, but there's got to be some in-between here. We need to have people with mental health therapy degrees working with some of this. After the documentary, there is one more extension of his sentencing. Big question in the documentary was, why hasn't he been sentenced yet? He was arrested in 2016. It's 2021. He's claimed to be guilty most of this time. After the documentary, I was like, why the fuck has he been sentenced? And they're like, well, he walked it back and then there was COVID. And I'm like, COVID has only been the last year of this. So the next time he pushes it off, the judge tells him that's it. The next one is sentencing. I don't care. I wrote my first victim impact statement. I included the contact that had happened after the documentary, comments, and reviews on the podcast. Specifically calls out Vanessa V, discusses my oddities store, which did not exist until 2017 after he was arrested. He states that I've declared bankruptcy, which did not happen until 2020 after he was arrested. He makes some wild claims about the shit that went on in my oddity store. I outlined how none of this information should be known by him or his wife, and I sent it to the judge. I made it very clear that I felt like unless he has the ability to use the internet removed from him for life, that this is going to continue. The judge at that point says that the guilty plea has been part of a deal. He has really only pled guilty to one charge. The judge will not consider any victim impact statements or information beyond this guilty sentence. So everything that was not that one person who I believe was the childhood pen pal is thrown out. The next sentencing, he is sentenced to one year and a day. January of 2022, he surrenders himself to prison. We watched on the BOP page, which is the Bureau of Federal Prisons, he was sent to MC Devons, which is the federal prison in Massachusetts that offers mental health care. He was released from prison in January of 2023, so this year, and has been out on parole. We have not heard out of him. 
He is on parole for three years. He is not allowed to have a cell phone or more than one computer or more than one email address, any electronic devices in the house, even if owned by other people, have to be listed with the FBI and they all have to have tracking and monitoring software put on them. As far as I know, he still uses the internet. He's still selling books. Technically, that monitoring is only for three years, right? Yeah. So I guess he got out in 2023. So in 2026, it's up. None of us know what that means, especially because in the end there, it was made very clear that we are not considered legitimate victims. It also made me very mad because I worked so hard with the FBI. I did so much to help them. I had databases of my documentation that they received. The slap in the face was all of the victim impact stuff thrown out. I had all of that empowerment of people finally taking us seriously and doing something. Then at the end, to just have it thrown away. I felt like at the end, the judge sent the message that the only person they really, in the end, cared about was this one woman. I mean, what she went through was horrifying. This is around the time where I look into a civil suit. Once sentencing has happened, I can sue him for slander and harassment. My lawyer assured me I could have garnished wages, but when I really looked into the suit, it once again was so soon after my dad's death, I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth. It has been so quiet since he was arrested. As soon as his rolls up, who knows what's going to happen once he's free that this might start going on again. So why would I be afraid of speaking out? I'm going to get punished no matter what I do. If people forget about this, that does me a disservice. I'm not the only one going through this, too. I really commend you. And I just thank you for this. You talked about leaning on your husband. What other resources or tools really helped you get through? I tell my friends who are starting therapy, I'm like, this is dating. You go on a couple of dates with them after intake and see if you like them, see if you're going to mesh because they're not all great. There's some therapists that are really good with childhood trauma. And then there's some that are great with teen issues, LBTQIA. And that's very important for me. I don't want to have to explain and justify myself, which I've had to do with a therapist before. Victims groups are great. If you are going through this kind of thing, you need to document everything and then you need to document your documentation. So keep detailed notes of what is where, because if it starts to add up, you're going to need a map. Having had 10 plus years of shit, I have to go back and try to piece it together and having like a database or even just detailed notes on what's where and when really helpful. Don't get scared and delete it. That actually happened to me at one point. I freaked out and thought maybe deleting shit would make it all go away. Be persistent with law enforcement. Keep dumping their stuff on it. Make them talk to you and find your people. There was one young person that reached out to me that had been groomed and then stalked by their groomer. I didn't solve it for this young person, but I felt like I helped her a lot. I showed her how to document it gave her some resources, and that was really empowering. So sometimes it's good to remember that surviving this stuff gives you a chance to help other people survive it. Helping is healing. Helping was healing, a good therapist, and reminding yourself that nothing is forever. It's going to end. Even if I only get this respite while he was in jail, I feel much more empowered to brush it off. I don't want to say it's not going to get to me if he resumes it, but I feel like I'm in a better space to 
not let it get to me as much. In sharing, you've removed some of the power that his actions have held over you. If he starts up again, there's a lot of people in the media that will be very interested in talking about it. That digital trail that you're creating is helpful. I mean, there's strength in numbers. And also, you're not the person that you were two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. You don't have the same resources. The systems aren't where they are. Yeah. This started 20 years ago next year. This started happening when I was around 23. I am now 42. What fortitude you have exhibited? Life's going to keep going on. That's how you deal with grief. That's how you deal with any of this. Your life's going to keep going on. Sometimes it seems cruel, but that's also a blessing. And you're going to be okay. Especially those of us who have lived in the alternative scene. You're not alone and you're going to be all right. I have really deep sympathy for people. I am aware that Jason going to jail has probably made him a more damaged human being. I would rather he actually got help so that he could stop doing this for good. The thing I wish they had included in the documentary, because I 100% stand by it, one of my biggest goals in going into that, Amy, if you are listening to this, move on with your life and have a happy life. She and I are the same age. He had to have groomed her. They got married shortly after she turned 18. She needs out of that situation. And I really, really wish that for her. Get out and get in a healthy, safe place. And that speaks to your empathy, which is really beautiful. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for being willing to talk to me. Thank you for divulging so much. Thank you for giving space for these kinds of stories. For more information and statistics on cyberstalking, please listen to What Came Next, episode number 40, titled Danny Cords, an upstander unto yourself. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. The guy that came into the emergency room really, really violently attacked. And then I was his chaplain through his healing. That's when I went to jury duty and I realized it was that case. I was sitting there and I was looking at the two alleged perps. I had watched his journey and been with him. So there's no way you could be an unbiased. There's no way. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.